0: The Cambridge Film Show on Cambridge 105 Radio.
1: Hello, you're listening to Cambridge 105 Radio, and welcome to the Cambridge Film Show, your one-stop shop for shop talk on films big and small across the city in South Cambridgeshire. Uh, or if you're listening in the future uh, um, from our podcast, hello to our insect overlords from the sweltering Saturday afternoon in June 2023. Uh, and if you missed any of the primetime music shows over the past few days, you can find them all in one place on the Cambridge 105 Radio website. Right now, you can stream Strawberry Fair, 11 hours of, of recordings from the stage, including performances from Fred's House, the SGs, and Ollie Harris. There's also the latest editions of Stagger, Jazz Today, Urban Baseline, and Chris Brown's Soul & Dance Show. Just visit cambridge105.co.uk and look for On Demand. Speaking of On Demand, we've got a lovely variety of both streamers and big screen releases this week uh, to go through with our delightful panel. I'm Lorcan O'Neill, and with me today, in no particular order, are Matthew Taylor. Hello. Mark Walsh. Hello. Stuart Pask. Hello. And Emily Heinrich. Hello. We're kicking off uh, with the return of Miles Morales and the web-slinging action spectacle of Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. We're going back in time with period composition Chevalier, Uh, those gigantic gizmos, the Transformers, are back, Uh, this time going beast mode. Guy Ritchie brings us an action-packed commentary on the US military's occupation of Afghanistan. Bet you didn't see that coming. Um, Disney bring us the somewhat dubious story behind a crisp sensation in Flaming Hot. Uh, and it's been a few days since the last Stephen King adaptation, so naturally we'll do another in the goose pimpling, The Boogeyman. and We may also throw in um, a little segment on the upcoming drama, War Pony*. Um, so without any more ado to get through all of that, uh, let's see what's happening across the Spider-Verse.
2: Of danger Miles! Want to get out of here? Oh! When?
1: So wait a minute. There's an elite crew with all the best spider people in it? Who's the
3: new That's guy? This is unbelievable. This is the lobby. Miguel O'Hara.
1: The whole thing was his idea. What's a guy gotta do to join
4: this spider team?
1: You can never be part of this.
4: Don't even get me started on Doctor Strange and the little nerd back on Earth 199999.
1: After the global success of Sony Animation's game-changing animated feature Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, here we are five years later with the epic follow-up to Miles Morales' adventures with uh, alternate realities closing in around him. Um, Once again, joining forces with Gwen Stacy and a ragtag group of spider-people, this time facing off against a far greater threat. Um, Emily, I'll come to you first. Um, The first one was a huge success. Do you think this is a worthy kind of follow-up?
3: Yeah, definitely. I think... I think all in all the visuals are much more solid this time around. I loved they have like split screen animation going on. I loved that, and I thought that the the script was really solid as well. It's a it's a great follow up with kind of the monologues you'd expect from every kind of Spider Man movie. Those monologues about um, identity and family not accepting you, and I thought it was it was really well done the way that they kind of. Um, brought in gwen's storyline but it didn't feel out of place it was kind of uh creating her as a second protagonist it was really well done
1: and matt do you think it
4: was better than the first i don't think so because i didn't consider this to be a finished film so i'm going to reserve final judgment until we've actually seen part two which is coming out in march i believe Visually, it's an absolute feast. I struggle to think of any other word. There's just so much going on that I I found I could just just about kind of process it as I was watching it. And it wasn't until it got to the end where I thought, actually, I'm not really sure this makes a whole lot of sense. And I don't think it really kind of hangs together plot wise because it just felt a bit unfocused. I mean, the previous one you had a really strong villain in Kingpin and it was you know Spider-Man vs. Kingpin, which is a classic clash, whereas in this one there's almost three and again, being very careful to avoid spoiler territory but there's almost three villains one of them seemed kind of like a joke but then kept coming back and I thought okay, maybe this guy is a main villain the second one, it maybe isn't really a villain, but just has different ideas about how the Spider Verse works, which we as a viewer don't really understand. So it's like, well, I don't know if this is justified or not. And then a third villain is introduced, and then the film just kind of ends. So a feast for the senses, but I'm reserving final judgment. Well, I was going to say, Mark, this
1: uh, there are there are people in their seventies who grew up reading Spider Man comic books. Um, is this is this going to be sensory overload for um, kind of older audiences, or is this something that anyone can kind of walk into? Do you think?
2: Uh, I'm not quite sure whether I should include myself in the older audiences just yet. I'm probably at the older end in the studio today, so I'm going to go with it uh, and say that as, as one of the more senior viewers, I absolutely loved it, and I I personally think that it, this is suitable for all ages, uh, but it's such a visual treat. I will want to go back and watch this again several times, just to try and absorb all that detail. The joy of it is that you can take what you need to follow the story through, to get the story of the two protagonists and understand what's going on with Miles and with Gwen but then there's so many other little things that will reward on future viewings that it's a film that has layers and is going to reward those multiple viewings. I'm also going to slightly challenge this assumption that a film is not great because it's uh, a, not a, a complete story in itself. Uh, I mean, The Empire Strikes Back, which is a, a film that the filmmakers have been using as a comparison and which has regularly in making of trilogies ever since The Empire Strikes Back been a touchstone. You have a film which launches a franchise you have a slightly darker second part which maybe doesn't resolve arcs and then you bring it all together in part three we have become very used to that template all this is doing is playing out that same template but it's playing it out in an incredibly compelling way
1: okay i'm going to get back onto that later because i haven't actually seen it so i don't know i don't know how the the cliffhanger of this one works um stew um, there's so much Spider-Man media, and this is a multiverse thing. There's so much to work from. Uh, did it feel like just a, cre- a creative whirlwind that brought everything kind of together? I think it's um,
0: it's a great time to be a Spider-Man fan. I mean, um, I think we're we're really spoilt for choice at the moment in the amount of Spider-Man content and the Spider-Men there in them, Spider-Men and women indeed. Um, and it's it's really they're doing such great stuff with the source material at the moment i mean we've had 10 different spider-man movies today ever since uh, the first one with Toby Maguire back in the early 2000s um and i've grown up with these movies and so and i've grown up with the character before the the idea of a film was even conceived or, or thought possible um and and They're doing great things with the Miles Morales character in in, in Across the Spider-Verse. It's a fantastic piece of cinema, a piece of art in its own right. It's got some fantastic visuals, some fantastic ways of interweaving all the various spider people that we've seen to date. And... I was particularly impressed to find out that one of the sequences in this film, in particular, was effectively handed over to the animated by a 14-year-old fan who was recognised on the internet as having recreated the original Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, yeah, Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse trailer completely within sort of in the style of the Lego Movie animation. And I believe the animators of Into the Spider-Verse are also the people behind...
1: Phil Lloyd and Chris Miller, yeah. Yes,
0: behind the, uh, the Lego Movie. Um, So it's, and and again, it's a fantastic time to be a Spider-Man fan because Miles Morales is really front and center at the moment, having just come off the very recent releases of the PlayStation 5 games by Insomniac Games. Um, So we had the original spider Spider-Man one and then Spider-Man, Miles Morales. Um, So I think it's it's a really good time to be a Miles Morales fan because the character is so fresh in everyone's minds, albeit from a slightly different interpretation. And then we've just had Insomniac announce the next installation of those gaming titles released in October this year. So, yes, be a Spider Man fan. If you've not been a Spider Man fan until now, now is an excellent time to become one. <laughs>
1: right. So it's um it's a great time for Miles Morales kind of getting the spotlight away from Peter Parker as well. But like looking at this cast list, you got Jake Johnson, Jason Schwartzman, Oscar Isaac, Daniel Kaluuya. Does does everyone get some breathing room, or is it is it are they pushed to the side, or is it like an ensemble? How does that work?
4: Well, I, I was extremely disappointed to see the lack of Nicolas Cage. I mean, I'm, I'm a huge Cage fan. I, I always want You say Cage.
1: this for every film. I do,
4: <laughs> <laughs> I do, but he was in the previous one, and then he's teased to be back in the third one, so I thought, you know, get him for number two as well. Yeah, all, all the performances are great. Uh, everyone gets their own little intro montage, which is a lot of fun. Uh, the, the dialogue felt very naturalistic, maybe improvised. Uh, I, I don't know whether how heavily scripted it was, but, yeah, everyone got their own uh, moments to shine.
3: It was. I feel like a lot funnier than I expected it to be. I think Daniel Kaluuya's comedic timing is brilliant, and yeah, it, may, it might not have translated for American audiences, but as a British viewer, I loved him. I
2: well, think the the important story just to go across. The important thing for me as well is not only do all of these Spider Men get their time on the screen they all have their own individual animation style. For example, Daniel Kaluuya's character uh, is animated almost in the style of a front cover of the Sex Pistols album, uh, which is faithful to the comic book from which it's sourced, as I understand, because I haven't read quite as many comic books as some people, uh, but also it, it finds a way of blending into the film and all of these different animation styles find a way of coming together, merging together, but still telling a coherent story, and that's really powerful.
0: And again, it just goes to show how much um, the sort of Marvel universe is saturated into popular culture at the moment. Because at least three of the of the ta- of the of the, of the actors, the voice actors in this film, have already appeared in other, uh, not necessarily MCU movies, but certainly movies based on Marvel's intellectual property. We've got uh, Karen Sony, he played uh, Povitrova. Prabhu, who's Spider Man of in the Indian Spider Man universe, uh, we've got Oscar Isaac who plays uh, Miguel O'Hara, but he also played Moon Knight and has appeared in other sort of sci-fi franchises owned by Disney, such as Star
4: Wars, X Men Apocalypse as well, and X Men Apocalypse. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> I almost forgot.
0: <laughs> um, and also Haley Steinfeld, who plays Gwen Stacy, was also um, in in the in the Hawkeye, Hawkeye. Yeah, uh, TV one-shot thingy
1: on Disney Plus. <laughs> um, I, I kind of want to get back to this, because what I've heard is that it is upsetting some people, like Mark has alluded to, that it is the first half of a story. Now, Dune that came out a year or two ago uh, really rubbed me the wrong way in terms of, I don't mind setting up a sequel, but to to have no plot resolution, no character resolution, most of the characters just disappearing for the second half of the film, and, just, and then the film just cutting to black. Is that the scenario, or is it more of... Like, uh, like, I mean, Empire Strikes Back does have plot resolution. It does have character resolution. The, the Deathly Hollows Part 1 is the same thing. There is a way to do it. Is is that this? Do, do things wrap up and then tease the next film, or is it cut to black next film?
4: I, well, I heard that this was originally a four-hour cut that was then, they just said, you can't release this. And so it, it to me, feels like it was just chopped in half and they put a uh, To Be Continued Sutton in.
2: I I think the difference I had, I went to see this with my wife and uh, I'd seen this originally marketed as across the Spider-Verse Part 1 with across the Spider-Verse Part 2 coming next year and they've now changed next year's to beyond the Spider-Verse and so I knew that going in and was not expecting resolution she didn't see that and was then deeply frustrated when it got to the end and uh, things were were left hanging I'm not sure to use the Empire Strikes back comparison that all of that is quite neatly resolved you know, uh they are and if you haven't seen empire strike back then i'm really <laughs> sorry <laughs> but i am going to spoil it a little bit now <laughs> they they are going off on another mission as the film ends you know, they are both they're all going off on their own particular uh, Genesis adventures so you know it is it is very much setting up where we go from here But, uh, yeah, I I think you have to try and focus on the good things that this film offers uh, and then hope that you're going to be around in in March next year to try and see how it all pans out.
3: I think it would have been a frustrating uh, cliffhanger if it wasn't for my faith in the next movie Mm. that I know they will wrap it up in a good way.
1: Um, And then one last thing, just um, because I imagine animation, uh, maybe maybe more so in the UK than the States, I'm not sure, but um, animation probably puts some people off... Do you, would you think this is a good competitor for just like watching like John Wick like a live action action film do you think it's the same kind of the same kind of um, emotional payoff the same kind of adrenaline rush
4: Yeah I think it's as I said it's an absolute feast for the senses it's almost overwhelming how much incredible stuff there is to look at I mean see this in IMAX if you can because it's really mind-blowing
0: Yeah it doesn't have to it doesn't, just because it's not been shot on camera doesn't take anything away from the quality of the production that's gone into it. I mean, I know there's been a lot of controversy about visual effects artists being sort of badly recognised and treated in Hollywood recently. This is not an example of that. It's, they've gone dulled up to 11 for this.
1: Excellent. Well, one to be seen to be believed, Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse is a certificate PG uh, and it's screening at all three Cambridge cinemas. Uh, now let's travel to a revolutionary France uh, and witness the rise of a star.
2: Welcome to Paris, Joseph. Monsieur, I fear this will not be a kind place to such a boy. Boy has talents, but one
0: in particular that is exceptional. Very well.
2: I realized the more I exiled, the less I was alone.
0: You're always so competitive.
1: The show off who spoiled Mozart's concert. May I play with you, monsieur? I hope this won't be embarrassing for you. Starring Kelvin Harrison Jr. of Waves, the trial of Chicago Seven, and he played B.B. King uh, in Elvis, uh, Chevalier tells the, s- the true life story of composer Joseph Boulogne. Apologies for uh, probably pronouncing that wrong. Um, the illegitimate son of an African slave and a French plantation owner who rises uh, to high society to become uh, entangled in an ill fated love affair. Um, we had quite a few uh, Friday releases this week. Um, and Matt, you were able to catch this one. Um, it's directed by veteran TV director Stephen Williams. Uh, it's his first feature film, I think, 21 years. Um, how does it? How does he fare on the big screen? Is this one for the big screen?
4: Yeah, I'm not familiar with Stephen Williams. This, this did almost, I guess, now, especially now that we've talked about things not feeling finished, this does feel like you could have made a whole series out of it because it does kind of end... And I was excited to see more of what Joseph Ballone did with the rest of his life. And a lot of very interesting events are then just revealed in sort of text on a black background. But yeah, I would say as, as a film, there's a lot to enjoy. I thought it, Kelvin Harrison Jr. was brilliant as fencer and violinist, although Marx just told me that he's obviously not really playing the violin. But as, as someone who knows nothing about classical music or opera, he, he looked like he, he, was, he knew what he was doing the i think this film will probably annoy people in that it is possibly a bit revisionist of the reality of the historical story because it is very much the aristocrats are racist and the common folk are all very uh forward-thinking and progressive and i imagine the reality is is not like that but as a story i thought it was fantastic and i don't think that historical accuracy is the most important thing for a movie and it should just be a jumping off point to inspire you to go and find out more about this character from more reliable sources yeah i thought it was great
1: okay i i agree to like um amadeus is one of my favorite films and that famously isn't really rooted in the last historical fact but it's a fantastic film um does the so you got uh, kelvin harrison juniosco at samara weaving who i i find a delight whenever she shows up in anything although it tends to be quite brief um
4: does the cast kind of help sell this period the period setting Yeah, I mean, I really enjoyed the cast. You've got, so I've already said Calvin Harrison Jr. is brilliant. Uh, I really like Lucy Boynton as Marie Antoinette. I almost think she may have been a bit too sympathetic for Marie Antoinette as a character, but she's still really good. Uh, Samara Weaving as the love interest. Uh, fantastic as well yeah i agree she's often underused but not in this i also really liked uh, martin kasokas who i think i've only ever seen in the into the badlands martial arts show on amazon prime and he, he was actually really good he sort of seemed like a a young menacing russell crowe figure as the sort of head of the french secret police yeah it, i thought it was a really really cool story Um, Yeah, that's frustrating if you are a stickler for historical accuracy, though.
1: So you you mentioned the kind of historical, the revisionist kind of thing. Is it it trying to say something timely about modern times, or is it kind of just trying to portray the past in a certain way?
4: I don't think so. I think it is just a standard sort of racism story. I mean, the the title card comes up, and it says, contains racism. I was like, yeah, that's pretty accurate. (laughs) So it's definitely like one of these sort of modern things where they've just made the past with a progressive lens but still um you know i love stories about talented underdogs uh getting one over on the arrogant kind of smug people i mean the, the opening of this film is just so good where he i think it's given away in the trailer but he opens the film owns with a, a violin duel with mozart uh, and then Mozart sort of goes off stage and goes, who the hell was that? Except he doesn't say hell, he says a slightly ruder word that you're only allowed to say once in a 12A. And that moment just kind of made me think and go, oh yeah, I'm actually going to really enjoy
1: this. Um, I'm just picturing the opening of Deliverance and Louis XIII's
4: Chateau. <laughs> it is exactly that, yeah. Just <laughs> Deliverance, but with violins and wigs.
1: Uh, and then finally like i'm I'm not a big period uh, period costume drama kind of guy is there any like how would you sell this to me? do you think it's worth watching if it was unless you kind of intrinsically interested in the like period or the setting
4: I mean i I have no interest in classical music or opera and I still found it fascinating I think if you buy into this guy as a likable character he is quite smug but I think that's because he's he's learned to be smug to sort of exist in this world but he does portray this kind of bubbling rage beneath the surface that only just comes out a few times. Um, yeah, I had no knowledge of classical music, no appreciation for opera, and I still thought it was great. Excellent. Uh, well, uh,
1: Chevalier is Certificate 12A and is playing at the Arts House and The View. Um, now we're going to dive right back into our next film, uh, and we're going to the action-packed war drama, The Covenant.
4: John, you have Talies approaching.
3: I still don't remember a thing. I don't remember any of it. I only remember the interpreter. Why well, he wants this job? I need the money. Don't disappoint. Turn out to be a pain in the ass. No, not me, sir. Money isn't the reason he wants this job. It's Alabama killed his son. Stop the vehicle, Sergeant. We don't want to go down this road. You're out of your
4: bounds, Ahmed. You're here to translate. Actually, I'm here to interpret. John, you have tallies approaching.
1: Jake Gyllenhaal and his set of Pretty Blues star as Master Sergeant John Kinley, who, after suffering a devastating loss in combat, is rescued via the grueling effort of recently recruited interpreter um, Ahmed, played by Dar Um, And neither men's lives are quite the same afterward. Um, m- Mark. Does, does Guy Ritchie bring, because it, it was originally marketed as Guy Ritchie's The Covenant, does Guy Ritchie bring his kind of editing and action pizzazz to this war drama?
2: Uh, I, I think it is still actually listed on the uh, the title card as Guy Ritchie's The Covenant, uh, which which sets a certain expectation, and I think that expectation for me was subverted somewhat. Um, and I don't necessarily associate Guy Ritchie as being an action director because the, the two films which are for me the Guy Ritchie classics are Logstock and Snatch, um, and you know they're they're Cockney banter films. They're not mm. they're not necessarily action films. And he has done so much in his career, and he seems to have. You know it, it transformed into a generic action director who occasionally makes Disney movies, which is a weird career path uh, there 's no getting around that, um, but this is a really actually refreshing change of direction you know he 's got in a great cast headed by Jake Gyllenhaal and he 's doing something which is uh, earnest and uh, almost, I think, you know, trying to sort of apologise for some of, of Guy Ritchie's sins past and actually, you know, trying to make something that's got some, some value to it. Uh, you know, the, the title cards that come up at the beginning and the end of the film explaining the real-life situation, because this is not based on specific real-life people. I was slightly confused by the fact that there's then a picture of two people who look like the people who come up yeah. at the end, so I, th- I think a small amount of their story may have been taken, but as I understand it's not, not, not 100% based on their real-life story. I mean, if it was, wow, that's that's quite a story. <laughs> but yeah, you know, this is this is. I think Guy Ritchie actually showing what he can do as an action director, um, if he's got some patience. Uh, a lot of the action sequences are are tense and claustrophobic, uh, and you know, but he's also willing to take a moment to pause and to breathe and to actually reflect on where the drama is, rather than just trying to have a tiny little coda at the end of a, of a two-hour action film. You know, it's a proper showcase for the performances of the likes of Jake Gyllenhaal uh, and it's all the better for it.
1: Yeah, no. I almost thought he stole the last um, the last few frames from Peter Berg's uh, Lone Survivor just just to have something in there. Um, Matt, uh, we were but young men when we last talked about Guy Ritchie's film <laughs> uh, Operation Fortune Rouge de Guerre all those two months ago. Um, how does he make? How does Guy Ritchie make the jump from camp espionage thriller to the gritty hard war drama?
4: I think it's all about context, because probably if you watched an action scene from The Covenant and an action scene from uh, Rouge de Guerre side by side, you maybe wouldn't see the difference, but it's about this feels real. It feels like they're real people, and, you know, they might have silly nicknames, but as Carl Urban said in Doom, they're Marines, not poets. And they probably do give each other silly nicknames, and and that's a very Guy Ritchie uh, hallmark. Yeah, I think this felt like the most real Guy Ritchie's ever been and it definitely benefited for that. It's a story about, you know, paying your debts and honour and redemption and just the, the way that... A lot can be said. When you're talking about nonverbal communication between men, sometimes a small nod is all it takes to say a a lot. And that was what I really liked about this. It's it's all about this relationship between the two central characters uh, who can be very emotional when they're not with each other, but when they're together, they can say a lot by saying very little. I think uh,
1: there's definitely some truth in what you said, Mark, about Guy Ritchie um, being most synonymous with his um, his kind of British banter films. Do you think people going in, just people see the name Guy Ritchie on, on the poster and go in, do you think they'll be satisfied?
2: Uh, by this? I, I suppose it depends if they feel they're looking for a, a classic Guy Ritchie movie or just looking for a good film-going experience. Uh, and in in this sense yeah there is a little bit of banter you know there uh yeah uh, you know, between the 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 two lead characters you know when they when they're feeling out and getting to know each other uh, and trying to work out what sort of relationship they're going to have in the field also you've got to uh, Johnny Lee Miller as the commanding officer who as well he's who he doesn't get much to do but he does it very well mm-hmm. uh, in a very Johnny Lee Miller way uh, he's yeah one of the most reliable uh, character actors around and yeah it, it there's a there's a gentle undercurrent of banter rather than it being the the over-the-top, stylistic way in which, which Lockstock and, and Snatch kind of presented that. Um, but it actually fits very well with the tone of the film. But what it does mean is it's much easier to roll back into a much more emotional sense uh, for the scenes where where Jake Hall is talking to uh, his wife and trying to really understand the emotional stakes of, of how they pursue the the resolution to the film, you know that actually it's some of Guy Ritchie's best character work, I think, in a film. It's it's got an emotional honesty that that is probably pretty rare in his filmmaking back catalogue.
1: Um, does it do? I find sometimes with war movies, um, they do this thing where they, they're obviously condemning war and violence, but at the same time reveling in like cool action sequences. Is there, Does it kind of blur the line here? Or does it all kind of fit tonally?
4: I, I think to enjoy this, you kind of have to accept that whatever you think about. The war in itself, the soldiers fighting it, are doing it for reasons that they believe in deeply. If you don't accept that, then you won't enjoy this. But if you if you do think that the soldiers genuinely believe in what they're doing, that there is a heroic point, then you will be able to sort of enjoy the story of the characters. I I did feel a little bit that it was holding your hand quite a lot because any time there's any sort of uh, military jargon, a little. Flashcard sort of pops up to explain what it means. And it's like, well, either you know what that means already or you could figure it out from the context. Like, you don't need to be told that an IED is an improvised explosive device or an angel means an angel of death gunship. It's like you could kind of figure this out. Uh, the, the music as well is also quite uh, prescriptive. It's like, oh, this is the bit you're meant to feel nervous and this is the bit you're meant to feel sad.
2: I didn't necessarily mind that, but it did feel like a very hand-holded experience. I, I would just follow up on that by saying this a couple of occasions when I felt it was taking my hand and pulling it slightly in the wrong direction. There's, <laughs> this one key action sequence, which actually should be quite tense, but it's got the mournful soundtrack playing underneath rather than the tense soundtrack. Yes. Uh, and it feels like they hadn't quite engaged uh, director and composer in working out what mood they were trying to set at that particular point. Did did take me out of the film slightly at that point.
1: Um, with with the entitled cards, especially, it get, you, you, you get the impression that there's a very uh, definite message that is coming across about the Afghan occupation. Does the does the politics of the film kind of distract from the story being told, or does it is it all kind of part and parcel?
4: I, I don't think it distracted. I mean, uh, I would imagine that whatever you think about the start of the war in Afghanistan, you can probably agree that the way it ended was quite shameful in terms of hanging out to dry so many people who had been made assurances and I think, you know, the film raising raising awareness of the interpreters who have just been left behind and abandoned is, is no bad thing.
2: Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure you should ever be trying to make an apolitical war film. Mm. I think you, you have to take a side whether or not your audience agrees with that side. You've got to have a viewpoint if you're going into something like this. You know, all, all of the classic war movies have done and, and Guy Ritchie I think is fairly clear on which side he stands on this and, and again you know, it's the right thing to do.
1: Cool. And just then, is there, is there anything that makes it stand out from other war films, or is it kind of targeting uh, a safe kind of what you've seen before?
2: I, I think in the sense that actually it's not... So many war movies follow the template of maybe some kind of training sequence, and then you spend the rest of the time actually in that action moment. Here, a lot of the the core action is is set up in the first act, and then the film takes a very different shift as it goes mm. into the rest of the film. So you are getting a, a different template to the standard war movie. Um, you know, it is dependent on uh, uh, Darsheel and, and Jake Gyllenhaal uh, to a certain extent, um, and and it does then a little bit lapse in the final act back into that uh, gung ho war movie. Uh, you yeah, know, let's blow up everything, mm. and it, and it feels like it's it's gaining a victory that maybe it hasn't earned and is undermined by the message on the final title card a little bit and i suppose that would be my only reservation about this uh that does it fully commit to its political viewpoint that i'm a less sure about
4: it almost feels yeah as i say not following the standard war movie template of kind of building up to one big mission because it's it's almost symmetrical in the sense that Without giving too much away, A does something to B, and then B reciprocates for A in, in the sort of first hour and second hour of the film, which is a kind of unusual structure for, for a war movie. But yeah, I didn't didn't think it uh, suffered for that.
1: Excellent. Uh, well, strongly positive reviews. Uh, the Covenant is a certificate 15, and it's streaming on Prime Video. Cambridge 105 Radio.
3: On Sunday afternoons, relax with Jazz Today and Pete Butchers. Join me for music at the cutting edge. Mainly new releases, many on small
2: independent labels. The stuff you rarely get to hear elsewhere. I'll also be keeping a watching brief on jazz events in and around Cambridge, as well as chatting to local and
3: visiting musicians. Jazz Today at 4pm every Sunday afternoon on Cambridge 105 Radio. Go on, challenge yourself. Remember when
2: you were picked last for rounders in your school PE lessons every week? What about that time you asked Jenny to the college dance, but your best friend Dan had already asked her, and she said yes? Or how about that promotion you went for and got pipped to the post? by Mr. Big Shot? Well, don't worry about all that now. With General and Medical, you're never second best. For over 35 years, we've offered a wide range of private healthcare policies to suit all needs and budgets, catering to individuals and families, businesses and other organisations. To find out more, visit generalmedical.com. People first, always.
3: The
0: ultimate challenge is back. The 17th Cambridge Dragon Boat Festival in aid of Attenbrook's Charitable Trust takes place on Saturday the 9th of September gather your colleagues hit the water and hear the cheers of the crowd as you paddle your way to victory no experience necessary there's even a range of bankside entertainment food stalls and fun activities to guarantee a fabulous day out for all the family for more information and to register your team visit dragonboatevents.co.uk the 2023 Cambridge Dragon Boat Festival organised by New Wave Events and supported by Cambridge
3: One. 105
2: Radio. Cambridge 105 Radio. The Cambridge Film Show on Cambridge 105 Radio.
1: You're listening to the Cambridge Film Show on Cambridge 105 Radio, our fortnightly film review show. I'm Lorcan and with me today are Matt, Emily, Mark and Stuart. Um, we're halfway through our packed out lineup of this uh, this week so we'll um, get right on to it um, after the court of Mary Antoinette and um, the Afghan the start of the Afghan war um, let's stay in the past though a slightly different tact uh, with uh, transformers rise of the beasts for
3: centuries our kind has stayed hidden on earth yeah. But darkness has found us again. Prime. This is about the fate of all living things. Unicron is coming.
1: Stop. Based on the novel, by now I'm just joking. Um. <laughs> I'm, I'm just going to read this synopsis verbatim because it's quite something. Um, set in the 1990s, Transformers Rise of the Beasts takes audiences on an action-packed, globe-trotting adventure as the Maximals, Predacons, and Terracons join the battle between the Autobots and Decepticons on Earth. Noah, a sharp young guy from Brooklyn, and Elena, an ambitious, talented artifact researcher, are swept up in the conflict as Optimus Prime and the Autobots face a terrifying new nemesis bent on the destruction named Skr, sent as a representative of the much larger threat Omicron, uh, Unicron. Sorry. Uh not the not the variant. Um uh, Stuart, does that description do the film justice?
0: I think it oversells it, if I'm honest. I mean don't get me wrong. I mean this is one of those films where it's the seventh in the Transformers franchise. There, we've been some discussion in the year as to whether it constitutes a reboot or not. Um, but it, it goes back to the '90s, um, and so we get Optimus Prime back. Uh, and I have this written down because it's very specific. His return to his Gen One Freightliner FL86 cab o- cabover semi truck. Because that was who, what he was originally based on. <laughs> Nerd alert. Um, <laughs> um, but it's it's also a chance for them to sell some more toys. Because when you go into the cinema, the one of the first things you notice is it's yeah, obviously it's been sort of produced in collaboration with Hasbro who owned the Transformers property um, so it's kind of like sitting through a two hour toy commercial and that's fine <laughs> it does what it says on the tin it's um, it's, it's a great excuse to go into a cinema and switch off your brain for two hours and ten minutes and just watch and be nostalgic, I'm a child of the 80s and 90s so I, I grew up with the, the original Transformers and um, yeah it's fine (laughs) it's 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 not higher it's not pretending to be um Yeah. That's all I can really say about it. I I, I wholeheartedly
1: agree. I think um, for me, there's this this sweet spot where capitalism and entertainment just mix Mm -hmm. and it creates, it births this just absolute bizarre spectacle that I love. Um, Matt, you're old enough to have been kind of uh, watched the Transformers when it was kind of around in those early days. Mm -hmm. Um, Did this fill you with any kind of childhood giddiness?
4: I, uh, briefly at the end, maybe. I mean, I, I really didn't like this. I'm, I'm going to get a lot of hate for this, but I'm a big Michael Bay fan. And I, th- I felt like this sorely missed the Bay. I mean, no one does action like Michael Bay. And I felt like you could really see a step down in the CGI carnage. I mean, the, the whole final battle, even though I did kind of enjoy it because it's robots fighting and that's always fun, but it just takes place in a sort of featureless brown void. It is nothing compared to the the cityscape of Transformers 3, Dark of the Moon, where Michael Spay spends an hour destroying Chicago, which I thought was great, and, and no one else seems to agree with me. Um, I just... I don't know. I, it didn't quite work. Like, the the humans are just kind of there. He just randomly decides he's going to steal a car, and it just happens to be an, an Autobot, and then he, they just take him along on the quest. It's like, well, Why? Why, you do, why is any of this happening? That was, that was a problem for me. Well, it's The
1: Hobbit. They need, they need a burglar. Um, Mark, do you agree? Do you miss the robot carnage, Chicago in ruins?
2: Uh, I don't miss not having Michael Bay. No, hang on. was it? No, I, don't, I don't miss Michael Bay uh, because I believe that Michael Bay's contribution to the Transformers franchise is some of the worst directing of any film that's been delivered in the past decade or so. <laughs> I grew up on the cartoon Transformers. Uh, I had an Optimus Prime, I had a Jetfire, I had a, a Megatron, uh, I had various other smaller Transformers uh, uh, as a kid. I, I am very much of that age, you know. The, the target for these films is to sell more toys to kids, whereas I was being sold toys that encouraged me to go and watch Transformers the movie, the classic animation from the mid 80s which which utterly ruined and ended my childhood when Optimus Prime was killed off so my main experience of watching the previous Transformers movies has been hoping and praying that Optimus Prime will survive to the end (laughs) (laughs) that has been my my primary goal don't kill Optimus again and then of course in the second Transformers movie they killed Jetfire, my second favorite Transformer so I I may be bearing a slight grudge against Michael Bay for that as well full disclosure but I do think, yeah, you know, we we got back to a place where Bumblebee was just, you know, light roboty fun, and it seems a shame that we've decided that we that we have had enough of that, and we're going to depart, and we're going to go back to giant fighty robots, and that that is sufficient, because these giant fighty robots are so dramatically inert, and and actually. In an action film, so so actionally inert, if that's even a phrase, okay. <laughs> almost every sequence involves them doing a forward roll to arrive into an action sequence. They've already transformed, and they just sort of then dive forward. I expected at one point the humans to start doing something similar, because it appears to be contractually obliged. Everyone has to do a forward roll into a scene. There's no imagination put into anything at all. The only thing I think I really enjoyed is some of the 90s needle drops. Uh, a bit of LL Cool J uh, when one character arrives in a scene, uh, put a smile on my face, and, and that was about as positive as I can be about this, I'm afraid.
4: Can I just jump in on the needle drops for a second? Because even those I felt didn't really work. And there's one moment where... Uh, the main human character, Noah, drives in, driving the Pete Davidson robot. And uh, there's a notorious B.I.G. playing in the background. And then Pete Davidson just shouts, it's Wu-Tang in the house. And it's like, well, you can't even get that right. <laughs> um,
1: well, I mean, this is... You, you mentioned um, uh, Pete Davidson. This is Michelle Yeoh's first... Um Film credit uh, since winning her Oscar for um, Everything <laughs> Everywhere All At Once. Uh, and and you, there you got, is
2: everything that's wrong with modern cinema. Some of the <laughs> ones,
1: this was much better than Everything Everywhere All At Once. Um, you've also got um, there um, is Ron, everything
2: that's wrong with this program. He wants to do. <laughs> <laughs>
3: um,
1: you've also got Peter Dinklage, Ron Perlman, and M um, J Rodriguez of um, Poe's fame, I believe. Um, did, did the voice cast add anything to give any depth to the characters or relatability to the robot characters? Peter
0: Cullen returns for Optimus Prime and he has so much fun mm. all the lines are just so brutal <laughs> and um just it's like it, 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 it's a far turn from the from the lovable children's cartoon, but his it, it, the gravelly tone he lends to Optimus Prime again every sentence every syllable punches above its weight, and it's like this is great. <laughs>
2: I, I I would say that, that uh, of the author voice cast uh, actually Pete Davidson was the the only one apart from the existing voices like like Peter Cullen I I felt brought anything to this anyone else you could have got literally anyone to record their lines but at least Pete Davidson felt like he was trying to have fun as Mirage uh, and and you know again you know I I got some sense of enjoyment from it I can't say it really fired off many endorphins you know giving much of an adrenaline rush but you know he it felt like he wasn't just trying to earn the paycheck. I guess we could talk about the
4: cast again. I thought the human cast was a was a real letdown. I mean, I, I really like um, Mark Kermode's review of Transformers Dark of the Moon, which is just 10 minutes of him slaughtering it, which is great fun if you've not seen that review. But he talks about Michael Bay's approach to acting as just another special effect. He's like, oh, can we get some actors in here to do some acting? But in this, they, they didn't even do that. I mean, in, in the oh. previous five, you get... You at least get John Malkovich, Francis McDormand, Stanley Tucci, Anthony Hopkins. You know, where's the star power in this? Well, it's not
1: going over the top, though. I thought Anthony Ramos um, and uh, Dominique Fishback. I thought they... To go to kind of Bumblebee, I really didn't like Bumblebee. It was way, way, way too stripped back, and I hated the characters. Whereas this felt like a happy compromise to me. Let's, Let's try to create... Relatable, nice characters with good personal conflict, and then integrate them as naturally as we can into a film about giant robots fighting <laughs> a planet-eating monster. I thought, I thought uh, the Noah character, you know, uh, conscious, he's, he's he's fighting with his conscience to, you know break the rules versus provide for his family all that kind of stuff it's cliche but I, I found it engaging and likeable yes too
0: yeah I think I think so just, just a little bit of sort of behind the curtain behind the magic of the radio show now I'm here sort of helping sort of keep all the notes on the screen and everything and I've got a little bit of criticism to IMDB because let's face it we're all going to go and see this film for the giant robotic robots the, the, <laughs> the, 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 the human characters are largely secondary and IMDB arranges all the talent in order of screen appearances and because all the voice actors don't appear on screen I have to scroll down <laughs> to get all of the names of all of the of the voice actors for the transformers who arguably are the stars of the show so imdb sort it out
2: my my counterpoint to this would be to say that that we've mentioned the likes of francis mcdormand Danny tucci uh, and john Taturo would be another one all giving career worst performances <laughs> in those transformers movies of the of the last decade i think it's a it's a public service that no one has been dragged down to that level in this film uh it's it's a merciful release that you know Hopefully, Anthony Ramos. Uh, we, you know, this is not completely scuppered his career. Uh, you yeah, he was he was decently in the heights. He's all right here. Uh, he's fairly anonymous. I, I just, I yeah, I feel sorry for the poor lad, frankly, because he's he had to take most of the brunt of being a human in this one. <laughs> well,
1: don't listen to any of the critics. It's absolutely fantastic. Definitely, definitely bring your kids. Um, now, it's it's um, a mixed reception here, um, but if you're if you're one for the um, the action set pieces, I would say I would say give it a shot. We're going to very briefly do a trailer now for uh, War Pony. Oh, the baby boy. His mama got locked up. she need to
3: go bail her. I
4: ain't got time for
1: this.
3: I don't even know. She was just outside of my house. i going to buy her.
1: Uh, Mark, like, as as you mentioned, there's quite a few uh, Friday releases this week. Uh, you you were able to catch um, War Pony, which I believe is about two young men growing up on a Indian reservation in the United States. Um, how how was that?
2: Uh, it was interesting. Sounds like a terrible euphemism for uh, for, for an awful lot of problems. It's, it's a directorial co-directorial debut for Riley Keough, who's best known as, as daughter of Lisa Marie Presley and granddaughter of Elvis Presley. Uh, so he's, you know clearly. From a filmmaking point of view, try to take a very different tack and and not follow the expected paths. The thing which was unexpected for me about this is actually it's got two protagonists who are not the sharpest tools in the box. I think it's fair to say. Uh, you know, they uh, one is trying to breed poodles to try and raise money, and the other is a schoolboy who's just getting into trouble left, right, and centre. Every single thing he does just leads him further down that that troubled road. So it's a it's a slightly unusual portrayal it feels from the outside of the, the Lakota reservation and that lifestyle but you know it's populated with uh, actors uh, from uh, uh, the Lakota Indians and uh, yeah, they've been involved in writing the script as well so you would have to presume there's an authenticity there um, if that is the the authentic part they, they they have decided they want to portray as their community then it's an interesting choice. Uh, and that is definitely a euphemism. But there, there is some interesting stuff going on here dramatically. You just have to be a little bit patient with it. Um, at the screening I was at, there were a couple of walkouts fairly early doors. I think people have not quite got the pacing of the film. And actually, once it settles into its own rhythm of really trying to to understand the challenges uh, and the, the daily struggles of life in this particular community, then it's got some interesting things to say. Uh, you know, they are good performances from all of the actors. I, I think probably largely sort of first-time actors as well. Uh, you know, in particular, uh, the... Um, uh, and, you know, his, his name has disappeared in front of me and I can't see the screen over there because it's just far too far away. Uh, you may be able to tell me the name of the young actor who's, uh, who's the, the the young. Lead. If not, I'll try and look it up while you're asking your next question. Uh, but uh, but yeah, he he actually puts in quite a quite a decent performance uh, as the uh, the cheeky young boy who's ultimately just getting himself sort of more 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 and more dragged down into trouble.
1: So you, you said it's kind of like it feels like more authentic. Well, uh, behind the scenes, it's, it seems like it's an authentic story from the, this kind of community. Um, is there anything? obviously with with drama directors. Uh, early in the career they always want to do stuff to kind of stand out and be like oh this is a very basic story i filling for cheap but I'm going to give it a unique look do something with the editing is there anything unique or anything to stand out about this or is it playing it fairly safe to the bone?
2: Um, It's playing it fairly safe uh, you know I think yeah the the sort of yeah standard american isolated community feel is very much what you get here in terms of cinematography and in terms of direction uh it's not doing anything particularly remarkable but it is ultimately trying to allow uh, a focus on the story and the characters and there is yeah as the 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 two individual stories gradually start to weave together uh, there are some moments of drama and tension uh, and actually an uncertainty about how actually everything is going to resolve uh, and you know it it does Keep your interest. I, I, I will be interested to see what, uh, what Ryder Keough and uh, uh, fellow director Gina Gammel do next uh, based on this. Uh, it's a, an imperfect but uh, intriguing debut, I think I would say, from them as, as directors.
1: Imperfect and intriguing. Um, well, War Pony is a certificate 15, I believe, and is playing at the Arts Patriots in Cambridge. Now, again, we're going to do a very brief trailer to f- try and fit in everything. Here's a quick uh, snapshot of Flaming Hot.
3: We all write our own stories. Where is Richard? I'd like to speak to him. I'm here! This is mine. That's me, the Mero Meadow, Mr. Richard Montañez. I'm the guy who helped bring the world the most popular snack it's ever seen. Are you ready? I will. I've been ready.
1: Uh, so, yeah, Mark. Mark's going to take over quite briefly, because I'm, I'm the one who managed to catch Flaming Hot this week.
2: Uh, yeah, so, look, and you, you've seen Flaming Hot. I have to say that the pitch for this film, for me, uh, is turning an iconic global pop culture snack uh, the flaming hot cheeto which i think i've only ever actually heard about in films <laughs> i don't think i've ever to my shame maybe ever actually had a flaming hot cheeto um is eva longoria's film gonna change my mind and get me scurrying for the corner shop
1: um oh it, m- it might make you hungry but no it'll um you'll be so disgusted i think <laughs> by this by this film um, this was um, yeah Eva Longoria's first feature film debut directing. Uh, so clearly, I, I guess she she's either really loves Cheetos or <laughs> I just felt this is a story that really appealed to her. But um, I think the the main re- uh, like I said earlier, I I like this kind of capitalism meets entertainment kind of mishmash. But we recently had Air a few months ago that um, got really good reviews. So it's it's not impossible to make um, a good story out of this kind of stuff. But. Um, I think um, the the intriguing thing for me was the uh, Frito-Lays did an internal investigation and it's been reported uh, widely that um, the story by Richard Montañez who wrote a memoir about how he invented this flavor um, is largely fabricated uh, and Disney went ahead and um, made the film anyway Um, and you can tell it's it, it a lot of moments almost feel like it's trying to step, keep its toe out of hot water legally. Every so often they say, "Oh no, that's not really how it happened. It happened slightly differently like this." And then they they give a more like down to earth version of how it potentially uh, went down. Um, but no, uh, just to kind of c- close that, I wouldn't encourage watching it. It's if if you like if you like feel good, it's almost got like a sports movie vibe of like Rex Riches rising up against um, adversity, um, but. Uh, and the performances are fine, but it's just so cringe and decently. At a certain point, Disney just stops representing uh, a community and starts taking advantage of them st- in terms of just g-
2: gross stereotypes. Um, I mean, so, uh, just just to very briefly on the cast, because I mean, I'm just looking down the cast list. Dennis Haysbert, Tony Shaloub, some of the some of the best people in anything, frankly. Uh, they they get much of a look in.
1: Uh, they play very, very, very broad strokes character. Tony Shaloub is. Uh, the CEO with the Heart of Gold, and Dennis Svazbert is the mechanical engineer with the Heart of Gold, both tough exteriors that the Richard just has to break down and get to the, get to the kernel of niceness in, the, in, the, in their hearts. and um, it's, it's all very formulaic, and you know where it's going, and it's, it's not a particularly enjoyable ride. So not flaming hot for you, then? <laughs> not flaming hot. Mead tepid. Cool ranch, perhaps. <laughs> um, so last but not least, we're going to um, end off the show uh, with some childhood nightmare fuel. It's been around forever
3: Hidden In the dark It's like all those spooky monsters you think are hiding under your bed It's not real that comes for your kids when you're not paying attention.
1: terrifying stuff there. Low-budget horror director, uh, breakout director, Rob Savage, um, follows up his uh, viral webcam horror hit host uh, with not only a mainstream horror but a Stephen King adaptation to boot. uh, When a mysterious man visits psychiatrist Will Harper for assistance, he unknowingly bequeaths the doctor and his daughters a supernatural threat drawn to their grief uh, over the death of Will's wife. Um, The older daughter, Sadie, Sadie, is forced to figure out what's going on and what can be done to stop it. Matt, I I always ask this question for horror films. Was it scary? I
4: I, I don't know if you can say a horror film is scary or not because, I mean, ultimately as an adult, you should be able to not be scared if you choose not to be. I I think if you you watch this in a receptive mindset and try and engage with it, there are a few creepy moments. I don't think it was as good and scary as some sort of recent horror movies that it reminded me of, like uh, Sinister just purely because of the name Boogeyman and Mr. Boogey was the villain in Sinister. But, yeah, I I think there's enough creepiness here as a sort of 12A horror movie. Is it a 12A? I I feel like it should be. I believe it's a 15. Oh, maybe it would have been worth cutting It It is a 15, yeah. I think it would have worked better as a 12A, to be honest, because there's not much here that you need to be... Older to to get from it. There's, there's a few creepy bits, as always with horror movies like this. I think it's a lot scarier until you see the creature in the flesh. At which point, all the all the suspense kind of goes out the window. But when you can just see its eyes, it's quite scary. Yeah, we'll kind of get into that. Um,
1: Mark, you you mentioned you've seen um, Rob Savage's other film, Dashcam. Is this is this more mainstream? How does he how does he handle the transition? Do you think?
2: uh I mean, it's a disappointment for me because I really enjoyed Dashcam. Dashcam is we've had so many of these lockdown type films filmed from the perspective of a uh, a computer screen. Dashcam was filmed with lots of Dashcam footage uh, as a sort of pseudo-action movie uh, slash horror movie. And it just had so much imagination, wit, it had a really unpleasant uh, central character who you, know, you really kind of had to embrace while well, still disliking. You know, it was pushing in all kinds of interesting directions. This has got anything of interest just planed off until there is an absolute, smoothed-down vanilla horror movie. Um, and to do that to something that's, you know, even though it's based on a short story by Stephen King, to do it to a Stephen King property is, is <laughs> utterly shameful. Has he seen worse, though? I, I would uh, slightly disagree with, with Matt respectfully that, you know, I, I go to horror film festivals, I love my horror movies, and I still believe that a good horror movie is going to scare me. Uh, you know, I will sit in a darkened room, and I will embrace it, and, and if it works well, it'll suck me in. This, I had no real hope of doing that and I think because the direction was just far too conventional and because they had no idea how to expand this from Stephen King's original short story into a feature length. there's a twist in the written short story which can't be replicated in the sense of this film and and they, they didn't work out really how to then make a second and third act out of it instead.
1: Well the I think I, I agree I think I think I, I will still be expected I will still expect to be scared by horror film that's trying to scare me. Um, But um, there's, I mean, you you look at something like The Exorcist and The Exorcist is scary because Reagan. there's nothing special about her. She's not a good girl, she's not a bad girl. She's just a girl and then she gets possessed and you're like, oh my God, there's nothing special about me. Maybe I can get possessed by the devil. Um, But in this film, it feels very much you have to have a very specific set of family circumstances. Did that kill the tension?
4: Yeah, because for me, there's two kinds of horror movies to enjoy. One is the sort of body count horror, like you sort of, scream or friday the 13th something like that and the other is the horror where it's all kind of a metaphor for something and i was th- maybe like the babadook would be a great example of that where even at the end you're not sure if any of it was really real and with this i was thinking like oh is it is it a metaphor for sort of parental neglect and abuse and i think no i don't think it is i think it's just a scary monster thing crawling around and you can- <laughs> and you can kind of see it a little bit but sometimes you can't
1: well, it's very similar to the Babadok and it's effectively just a metaphor for grief again, which is tends to be the the running gag for all these but films.
4: then that kind of just broke down because it was just a monster at the end, but then the then the the dead mother's face was then in the monster
1: at the end as well, so I think they're they're <laughs> trying to claw back some sense of meaning um, um we kind of alluded oh, matt kind of alluded to earlier mark that um there does seem to be a shift halfway through where it goes from magic supernatural ghoul to wild animal, effectively? How, how did that shift work for you?
2: Uh, I think it's simply because the filmmakers don't really know what their, their core concept is. You know, you think of so many classic horror movies, more of the the sort of body count style, you know, mentioned Scream there. Yeah, the, the high concept, the thing you can sum up in one sentence. I couldn't give you a one-sentence description <laughs> of what this boogeyman actually is, why it's motivated, what it's doing to the central characters. It, it's such a loose, woolly concept, and consequently there's nothing to really hang the rest of the film on. You're not quite sure why the character's in jeopardy, what the stakes are, Uh, and and consequently when when the way to defeat this is thought up it feels like it's been plucked out of thin air. Uh, There's no real through line in terms of uh, overcoming that obstacle, you know, the the classic hero quest to try to define what you're actually achieving and what what the central characters gain by overcoming this thing. It's an unfortunate thing that's happened to them which they don't really understand and they don't really understand the way to defeat it but they're going to do it anyway. The end. it's not satisfying in any sense. It's almost as if the
4: director is a victim of his own success because he's he'd done such great work on a shoestring with Host and dash cam and has now been given the money to make a conventional film and all the sort of invention that comes from the budget has just gone out the window.
1: Um, just to kind of wrap up, it's, it's written by um, Woods and Beck of A Quiet Place fame um, and they um, recently the vastly underwhelming 65 starring Evan Driver versus um, Dinosaurs do you think they're just a one hit wonder should they just stop riding the the wave of success from Quiet Place
2: I think 65 is my worst film of the year so yes <laughs> and my second worst film of the year so also yes from me
1: okay so uh, Boogeyman looks like a skip I would say I would say st- once it stops being scary, just walk out. But the first half, I thought, was had some genuine th- thrills and scares in there. Um, the Man is Certificate 15, and it's playing at uh, the View Cinema. Um, sadly, that's all the time we have for today. Uh, we hope and all that we've given you some direction on traversing the past couple of weeks of releases. Um, please join us in a fortnight, where we'll be covering the highly anticipated DC epic, The Flash, as well as Wend- Wes Anderson's latest ensemble in Asteroid City. Uh, for now, it's goodbye from our reviewers. Goodbye. 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 And it's goodbye from me. Catch us in a fortnight.